2: at Let It Roll Cast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode, sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and many series. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www. Pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ned Sublet continue the Latin Roll miniseries based on Ned's classic book, Cuba and its Music, From the First Drums to the Mambo. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
0: Time to let it roll, or should I say, Latin roll? That's right. I'm welcoming back Ned Sublet to continue our discussion of Cuba and its music, from the first drums to the mambo. Ned, welcome back. Thank you, nate And and today we're talking about colonial Cuba. So last time we talked about the Spanish, their Arabic influences, and we also talked about the African influences. And I I sort of panicked and brought in the native, uh, the indigenous. A bit. So we already talked about the Taino, but technically I should have followed your lead and talked about them now. Um, But anyway, we're going to take this through the 19th century in this this episode. So tell us about the arrival of Europeans in Spain. I mean, in the New World, Ned.
1: So we're going to cover three centuries in an hour. This is going to go by quick, y'all. Take note. Yeah, it
0: is. Uh, We trust you. So the arrival of – what was the question? I'm sorry. The arrival of the Spanish in the New World and how it gets to Cuba. The arrival of the Spanish in
1: what uh, came to be called the Americas. Oh, my gosh. Well, let's go back to 1491, baby, when the Congo is Catholicized. Uh, The year after that, a lot of big things happen. The uh, Spanish uh, Christians retake Granada, March Isabel and uh, Fernando march in dressed in Moorish costume and uh, assert their control over all of Iberia. Uh, The Jews are told that they must uh, convert or leave, and an exodus of the people known as Sephardim begins. Um, And, of course, the least important at the time, it seemed, uh, that Sailor from Genoa, Christopher Columbus, as he's called in English, uh, sets out, and it takes uh, he makes four voyages. It comes to Cuba. The uh, the it takes a little while for the, uh, the first city in the New World is uh, the so called New World. It wasn't new to the people who were already living there, it was uh, Santo Domingo, and Cuba is begins to be settled in the 15 teens, populated with villas or cities, a small uh, set of uh, settlements that run from Baracoa in the east uh, across to San Cristobal de la Habana in the west. Havana is uh, an obvious place for a settlement because of its magnificent deep water bay protected by a long, narrow channel, easily defensible. And indeed, uh, for centuries, the Spanish would put a chain across the channel at night. You can still see where it is if you go to Havana today. It's still a prominent part of Havana's landscape. And Havana becomes the hub of the Spanish empire in the Americas as far as shipping goes. Uh, the merchants, there were no merchants in Havana at first who participated in this. The merchants were in Spain. The merchants were in uh, Peru. The merchants were in Mexico. Havana was the place where the ships uh, where the were. Unloaded their precious metals as mining developed, the Spanish were interested in mining, not plantations and The Spanish uh, ripped as much silver and gold out of the bowels of Mexico and Peru as they could uh, as they could dig out process and stuff into ships and Those ships uh, stopped in Havana for a substantial amount of time before going back to Spain what this all has to do with music uh is of course that this network of shipping was created and sailors went back and forth not only sailors other kinds of people as well but especially sailors traveling back and forth carrying not only precious metal but songs and dances after having been weeks and weeks in what became an Afro-Latin hemisphere as uh, Africans were brought in and black people from Spain as well came. The uh, There was a uh, sort of a center of music and dance in this wild west town of Havana, because of course, this was where the ships had to lay up before going back to Spain. So sailors would be there for weeks, uh, even months at a time as over the uh, years the fleet system developed uh, which set large uh, by the time the fleet was uh, the fleets were in operation the fleets uh, from Mexico and the galleons from um, Cartagena uh, all of this material that was being loaded into the ships took Time the ships had to be refitted, and so the sailors laid up. Did the things sailors do? In uh, they hung out, gambled, drank, danced, and they danced a lot. Apparently, in the taverns of Havana, because Havana was this melting pot where all the new Afro-Latin jams of the hemisphere came together and uh, creolized, in a sense, before going back to Spain, where they traveled up through Europe and slowly became part of the music of Europe. The most famously, the Sarabanda, which travels in the late 16th century to Spain, travels up through Europe, and a century and a half later finds itself in the work of J.S. Bach, Sarabanda named for the Congo god of iron and war, and followed by the Chacona or Pasacalle, something that passes through the street, all of which is to say that Havana became very quickly the capital of music and dance in the Americas.
0: Yeah, I love the, the comparison you make with Cadiz, which you had called the tavern at the end of the world in the ancient world when it was way out on the west coast of Spain. And now Havana has taken over that role. And you also, you you mentioned <clears throat> the Congo Congolese source of the word zarabanda, but Western, s- Western scholars have frequently been baffled by the source of that name because they don't think to look back to Africa. So I'm glad you solved that puzzle for us. I'm going to play our first song, and when we come back. We're going to have to backtrack because I forgot to bring drums into the story. But um, first, we'll hear the Zerabanda as played by Gaspar Sans. Uh, uh, wait, this is composed as composed by Gaspar Sanz from 1640 to 1710. This is performed by Andreas Knoxheim on baroque guitar and Klaus Mader on. Colascione. This is the Zerabandam of Gaspar Sound. And so my fault, I should have asked you about drums before we got to the New World, because this is something you discussed. What was the European relationship to drums, and who really introduced that, reintroduced them to drums? Because presumably they had drums before the Catholic Church came along, or I mean, all church music was a cappella, didn't play instruments, and it was War from the East that introduces uh, the Europeans to drums again. There are uh, different accounts
1: of this, uh, depending on what period of history you're looking at. I make a big argument in Cuban its Music that uh, while the—well, uh, and, and echoing Fernando Ortiz's similar argument, it's not entirely original on my part—that uh, the Turkish armies are generally credited with bringing— um, percussion forces into the European orchestra, into br- the, uh, the symbols of the Janissaries, for example, as well as uh, the trumpets and drums that they used in their military campaigns. But as Fernando Ortiz says before that, there were the Almoravids, who in the uh, back in the day conquered Spain from a base in Sub-Saharan Africa, right? Uh, These were African Muslims who conquered Spain, uh, or what at the time was called Al-Andalus, conquered uh, Muslim Iberia at a time when um, um, the Umayyad dynasty and the Abbasid, the Umayyad dynasty, in cordoba had uh weakened and the in spain had uh al andalus rather had degenerated into a set of uh, city states of taifas or petty kingdoms leaving it ripe for takeover and when the the Almoravids came they came blasting with drums which is the punchline of all this drums from africa played by uh played by afghan soldiers uh coming up into spain so they were there well before the uh turks so you can you can look at it uh both both of those are valid you know the drums came into spain and then the turks transformed the sound of europe but i i think that those is the two main forces
0: yeah and and um this I wanna wanna sort of emphasize another thing, the the importance of military bands. In the 21st century, when we get reports, you know, we see video from these horrors that are happening in the Ukraine, it's impossible to imagine how a little marching band has anything to do with war. But several hundred years ago, especially before cannons were, were common, and even when cannons were a minor ingredient in the battlefield, the sound of drums, snare drums, um Trumpets and various horns allowed military units to signal one one another over the sound of men screaming and fighting and dying and stabbing each other with swords and shooting each other with with muskets. The sound was loud enough of trumpets and snare drums for them to signal military instructions. Also it was a great way to intimidate your opponents as you know here in Texas we always learned about Santa Ana terrorizing the you know and occupant the occupants of the Alamo with, uh, I think, Degueo, the, the death song. And so this was a very, it had a very practical function, and it was something that all the leaders of Europe paid very close attention to. But now I want to that's, talk to you about, uh, go ahead.
1: That's right. Uh, m- musicians were an integral part of armies, and uh, as the as the as armies became more professionalized, sort of reaching its apogee with Napoleon, the bands also got larger and more elaborate but from um but but it was unthinkable to have an army without uh without its musicians and this has effects that we hear all over the place today um Our jazz instrumentarium basically derives from the military band of which there were. Uh, and there were plenty of military band instruments in New Orleans. Or uh, while we don't uh, see marching bands going into battle with soldiers anymore, uh, I was watching just two nights ago the arrival of the Brazilian president um, Lula in Argentina, and he was greeted on the tarmac by a military band playing an anthem, and they all st- they all marched off the plane as the band played. The ceremonial uh, role is still significant.
0: Indeed. And now I want to ask you about another chapter title that you used um, and, and how dance crazes migrated from Havana back to Europe. You said, from the Indies it has come by post was the chapter title, and you talk about the- That,
1: that was Lope de Vega's line about the Chacona. It came by from the Indies by post.
0: Exactly. Now tell us about the Chicona and what was African about it and then how did it transmit around the globe?
1: Well, the Chacona or Pasacalle, as I mentioned before, the Pasacalle, is characterized by an ostinato base. Ostinato from the Italian word meaning obstinate, meaning it just goes, it repeats over and over and over. It's a simple repeating base figure. Uh, This is something that we're really, really familiar with in popular music today, but it wasn't the norm in European music at the time. And this coming from the Afro-Latin Indies, I argued that there is a sense of African music in this textural concept.
0: And another thing that was interesting to me that I didn't understand before reading this was that the Europeans would take African rhythms but then they would they didn't they still didn't much like drums they used tambourines a bit but they would they would move these African rhythms onto other instruments explain that a little bit. that's right
1: that's right as as fernando ortiz said the uh... The good drum is played with the sticks. The bad drum is played with the hands. The, uh, the hand drums were associated with Africans, with witchcraft, with uh, uh, people who were socially low. And the only acceptable hand drum was the tambourine or frame drum. And it was in that form that uh, the Sarabanda traveled up through Europe, not played on uh What Africans would call drums, but on tambourines, along with that uh, new instrument um, popular among uh, Black Seville and Black Lisbon. Uh, Remember that at the time Columbus sailed, uh, both Seville and Lisbon were between 5 and 10 percent Black. Uh, I refer to the guitar, which uh, was an an instrument that uh, emerges in Iberia. And was played by the lower social orders the guitar was always associated with the bottom socially and it was played by a lot of black people in Spain who played it in a rather different way than the uh, high style of classical guitar that uh, we hear later Uh, it was played uh, in a way that was rhythmic and Quite possibly more like what we hear in the cavaquino of the samba today, a, uh, a, uh, a repeated uh, rhythmic drum. The, uh, and this, this is like, uh, this is so basic to the idea of the guitar. And black people were playing guitar long before the guitar had six strings. At the time, it was four double strings
0: cool and let's go ahead and hear our first song and this will take us back this is the world's oldest living band the Ottoman Mehter group which is a traditional band in Turkey that tries to recreate this I guess they've been going for several centuries actually they're not recreating anything they're maintaining an old tradition this is the Metter Assault Anthem was the world's oldest living music band playing the ottoman meter assault anthem and that's the kind of sound that terrorized uh, europeans fighting for vienna in the 15th century 16th century 17th and 18th century um so and this, now terrorizing podcast listeners today <laughs> it never stops those turks um, but the, i also want to ask about the guitar a little bit because they had the lute or the oud uh from the Muslims with the rounded back. And if you've ever played one of those, like plastic ovation guitars from the eighties with the rounded back, it's a lot louder than a normal acoustic guitar. Why did they give up a technically better piece of equipment to move to this flat backed instrument?
1: After the uh, Christians uh, took complete control in Iberia, a campaign of
2: uh,
1: D. uh demorifying the country began uh libraries were destroyed and burnt uh all overt references to uh the previous culture were forbidden of course folkways continued um people the architecture was still um there in many places um People in uh, southern Spain continued taking baths the way they had done uh, in, during the Islamic environment. But uh, among the things that became uncool were the musical instruments favored by the uh, by the Muslims and that included the oud. The oud in English is called lute, uh, and in Spanish the word is la oud, right? La oud, which becomes lute in English. Uh, But that was not uh, really uh, allowed. Instead, a different instrument uh, came up that for about 50 years or so, there's a literature, and then it kind of disappears again. And I actually learned how to play it as an undergraduate music student 50 years ago: the vihuela, or the vihuela de mano, which was a flat-backed, smaller instrument with six double pairs of strings. The uh, The oud was used to play single string melodies for the most part. Uh, It wasn't used to play the kind of counterpoint that we associate with uh, classical guitar where people transcribe Bach farts. That's because the oud didn't have frets. Which also meant that it had all kinds of intonational subtleties, but uh, and apparently it did not begin in Spain, but the tying of frets onto the neck, which made it into a different kind of instrument, um, and the frets on the vihuela uh, allowed for a different style of playing that imitated the vocal polyphony of the mass and other classical composers. So some of the first instrumental polyphony is actually for this family of plucked stringed instruments. And we start to hear um, for about 50 years these elaborate contrapuntal fantasies whose scores still come down to us. Luis Milan, uh, Luis de Narváez, Enrique de Valderrabano, small handful of composers who wrote some quite beautiful music that nonetheless disappeared. The viola was a fragile instrument, very soft, uh, and did not really last. Instead, the guitar, by the, uh, by the 17th century, the guitar was starting to become more popular. The so-called Baroque guitar, which we heard earlier in the Gaspar Sanz piece, which had uh, five double strings, and then um, it took until the 19th century for the guitar to have six single strings.
0: And so there's two pieces I want to introduce while we're talking about Cuba. And I want to remind people, we we discussed the Taino, uh, the native indigenous population in Cuba and their uh, contribution to music in last week. So I don't want to get into that too much, but they did have big musical rights. The population survived, although the culture was annihilated, but there's many people in Cuba still uh, carrying the blood and genes of the native Taino. But I want to ask about two things that um, get involved in the picture around this time. And the first one is claves. Where does the clave come from? What what was it in the ships that um, made it such that these manufactured worked piece of hardwood were so available in Cuba? The This is really Fernando Ortiz's
1: hypothesis. It's quite elegant. And as far as I know, it really hasn't been refuted. Um, Havana became a shipbuilding center for Spain. Havana still had these magnificent hardwood forests that were, of course, all cut down. Um, And in in that day, ships were not yet held together with nails, but with uh, pegs these hardwood pegs uh, and these pegs became in the it so goes the thesis you know, what's the,
0: the word for the ship, pegs the ah yes
1: yeah, thank you
0: Clavijas.
1: right you go. uh yep. clavija this this word uh clave has a whole bunch of different meanings it's a whole complex of things mm-hmm. a clave can be a code um if somebody has, you know, somebody's, you know, has a has a tele number of rings code for their telephone. Like you pick up after the second ring, that's a clave. Um, to use an actual given example, um, the uh, a keyboard is sometimes called a clave. Um, the you know clavar can also mean to nail something in modern uh, speech. Clave, uh, the clavijas, um, apparently. These became uh, used as what we now think of as claves in the arsenal in, or, or shipyard in Havana. And this seems to have been not uh, so much—it doesn't seem to have flourished initially among black musicians as much as among the Spanish peasants and the, the people from the Canary Islands. Who had arrived there, and it appears that what they were doing is playing a kind of a timeline. These timelines, that is to say, they play a a a figure that locks down the time so that the the singing poet can sing over it. Uh, This is heard in Arabic music. This is uh, it, it does not appear that they originally come to Cuba from Africa, but Africans. Knew what to do with them. Fernando Ortiz says there's no place in that, said there was no place in Africa where claves exactly appear as they do in Cuba. And it seems that in Cuba, a purpose was found for the claves as a new Cuban music started to appear. So that uh, there is a now we I said that clave could mean several things. We've been talking about the instruments, but there is also a more theoretical sense that musicians use now when they speak of clave, which is it is a rhythmic key that underlines the uh, the way all of the rhythms of a polyrhythm are oriented. I don't know if that makes uh, sense or not. Uh, but well, let me take a whack it,
0: at explaining how we, I understand it. So, and you can okay, correct me sorry, where sorry. I'm wrong. So, so the clave keeps the master rhythm essentially for the whole. Polyrhythmic orchestra. Like they've got this incredible science of polyrhythm from the Congo that I think, from meeting you and other things, is comparable to what Bach did. I mean, this is an incredible storehouse of human learning developed over centuries of how to play different beats in sync with each other. And so there's got to be one player who's got the key. And if you think about it like you think of a key, with harmonics like as long as everybody knows what the key is like we're in the key of g play notes that fit in the key of g but you can play any of the notes that fit in the key of g right the bass player can be playing one you know the first the first note the the guitar player can be playing the fifth or whatever with the clave as long as you're in sync with one of the beats on the clave you could be you know playing um three times as fast as the clave somebody else could be playing half as fast as the clave but they're all keyed into the clave does that work uh, that's pretty, yeah. That's pretty good. Uh,
1: the one uh, exception I would take to that is that I don't think that it necessarily comes from Congo. Uh, in fact, to the strongest sense of clave that I get in the extant African music of Cuba is in the Yoruba music, which was the last to be brought, and which has the the music of the bata has a very strong sense of clave, and I've seen. Uh, In ceremonies, many times a singer will mark the clave with his hands when somebody's not with it to get it right. There's a very strong sense of clave. And when I say clave, uh, again, to, to build on what you just said, if you're in a band and the clave is going bop, 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 you know that you've got to play against it in a certain way. You can go... Pom, pom, mm, pop, 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 pop. but you can 't go pop, pop, pom, pop, 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 pop. because one way is with the clubby the other way is against, and you 'll get and the dancers will stop. <laughs> the, you'll be fired, you'll be thrown out the window, you'll be ostracized and shunned if you don't know how to keep uh, your rhythm in line with the clave, even though you are playing your own independent rhythm. And it makes it possible to stack the polyrhythm. It should be noted that this is really not what we have in music in the United States. While we may have this undulating sense of bump, 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 Bom, bom. Take, for example, the Bo Diddley beat. It's not necessarily being used to stack a polyrhythm. It's a different kind of texture. In, uh, in music in the United States, we tend to have more of a beat. I argue that Cuban music has less of a beat and more of a polyrhythm.
0: Awesome. And let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to ask you more about these guitar playing singing poets. And we talked about this a little bit and how it relates to the modern you know Mexican uh, corridor, but the, you say in here the Cuban Guajiro is not a musician but rather a poet. Explain uh, what this this whole tradition that evolved of, of poets playing guitars and singing these improvised but formulaic uh, patterns that has obviously got immense potential.
1: Yeah. This poetry of the Spanish language, we uh, talked last time about Elio Antonio de Nebrija and his standardization of Castilian grammar just in time to build a hemisphere-wide empire that all spoke the same standardized modern European language. This language being disseminated all around the hemisphere meant that uh, all up and down the hemisphere, there were uh, people— singing, speaking, improvising, and reciting poetry in Castilian, uh, with, you know, the local dialect variant, certainly. But the, the sense of this, to me, is that uh, most people were illiterate, okay? Uh, and that, that, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't a strongly cultivated tradition of oral poetry, which in some cases entailed recitation of written poetry that had been memorized orally. And this uh, gave rise, of course, also to poetic controversy, what they call in the decima controversia, uh, where people argue in verse, according to, as you said, predetermined rhyme schema, most uh famously the Decima espinella, the 10-line stanza, uh, which has, for us, perhaps the peculiar rhyme scheme of A, B, B, A, A, C, C, D, D, C, um, which is kind of a... You kind of have to grow up in that system to really be able to improvise it uh, fluidly, but it's amazing the way that... uh, someone well-versed in decimas can improvise an argument in that, uh, octosyllabic, uh, 10 line form. Uh,
0: and it really plays off of the strengths of Spanish as a rhyming language. It's an incredibly easy language to rhyme in. So if you ingrain right. with that complicated rhyme scheme in your head, you can really go to town and people, uh, have been doing it for centuries now.
1: Yeah. And in between when we say poet rather than musician, the, uh, the there's not a lot of musical variety in these you can uh, if you're in cuba you can see every sunday night on the longest running show on cuban tv palmas y caña palms and cane uh people uh arguing and having controversies and, and in between the uh the the uh, the the rhymed parts. There will be an instrumental interlude where the laud, the country laud, uh, the country form of the lute will, uh, or another instrument will play a formulaic interlude which doesn't vary a lot. Uh, but this gives the singer a moment to catch his or her. Uh, a mental breath so to speak to uh to come up with what they're gonna say as soon as the interlude is over so uh, it's almost more of like uh, you know the the hold music on a quiz show or something
0: you know? and let's go ahead and hear a little bit this is josito Fernandez doing the Guajira Guantanamera <laughs>
3: Más que el mar, denle al vano el oro tierno, que arde y brilla en el cristal. A mí denme el coste eterno, cuando
1: ro.
0: All right, and that was Josito Fernandez doing the Guajira Guantanamera. As always, apologize. apologies for my terrible, abysmal Spanish. There's no excuse for my pronunciation. We're
1: going to send you to school, Nate. You're going to be good this next year.
0: <laughs> my
1: brother got Look, sent. Can I, can I just say something about the sure. Guajira Guantanamera? Everybody knows that song, of course, because in the... 1960s and not before then, uh, partly through the efforts of Pete Seeger, it kind of became the Cuban anthem worldwide. But when Joseito Fernandez composed it in 1928, it had a rather different function, which is Joseito Fernandez was a radio troubadour. Uh, In the 30s, there were a lot, during the Depression, there were lots of uh, radio stations in Havana, that, and they had live entertainment all day long. They didn't play records. And the cheapest thing to put on the air was a troubadour. This was the so-called intermediate trova between the old trova, the vieja trova and the nueva trova. And these guys would uh, come on air and sing decimas and songs and play their guitar and they cost almost nothing. Uh, Well, what José Fernández would do was actually sing the news. In decimal form, if they're in uh, in particular, the sensationalist uh, news, the kind of stuff you would see, you know, the New York Daily News headlines kind of news, you know, bus accident kills 10. And he would make up a decima about the bus accident and how sad it was. And so there actually came to be a saying in Cuba uh, when somebody dies, they say they sang him the Guantanamera.
0: <laughs> well hopefully will no, be singing it for us anytime and in soon.
1: between each verse of his of the news he would sing da, wahida, which he, he could do an autopilot while giving him a chance to compose the next stroke
0: man all right, so now we got to introduce a new culture into um the story, and these guys kind of come out as the villains or the most villainous of many villains oh. Well, we could argue about that, but they're definitely up there as ter- in terms of heinous. How did the French get involved? How do they carve off half of Espanol uh, and make it what we now know as Haiti, What was not known as Haiti until the Haitian Revolution? How did they get in there, and what was their impact on the music? Oh,
1: my gosh. Well, the last Habsburg king of Spain, Charles II, who was... Um, a the result of a long line of inbreeding and was um n- not um everyone should google the,
0: Habsburg jaw google Habsburg jaw and you'll see what happens when you marry your cousin yeah
1: google Habsburg jaw the uh he he was he he didn't really have all the cheese on his enchilada and um he uh there was a uh the problem in um Hispaniola, La Hispaniola, the island that uh, today houses uh, the Dominican Republic and Haiti, uh, which was that uh, other nations were breaking Spain's trade monopoly by, who's, by sending their merchant ships to trade with these settlers, the Spanish settlers on the north coast of the island. And in, they were bringing, worse, they were bringing Lutheran Bibles, the heresy of Protestantism. And uh, the king ordered the, that the uh, settlement of the island be shrunk down to Santo Domingo in the south. Uh, and, and he even hung recalcitrant farmers who refused to relocate. So he depopulated the island, which was about the stupidest thing you could do. Uh Santo Domingo was reinforced, but the rest of the island was empty and it became a void into which first um freelance cow killers call, uh who who survived uh uh hunting the wild cattle that had proliferated after the Spanish arrived. These people were called buccaneers in an almost entirely male society. They were Replaced, they gave rise to uh, they they gave way to pirates over time. Um, headquartered especially on the island of Tortuga, and finally the French moved in. And by the time the 18th century was uh, well underway, the French were starting to establish plantations there. And after the uh, as the 18th century rolled on. The western side of the island, which they called Fandomang, became the richest piece of ground in the world, with the largest number of Africans ever assembled in one uh, place to work in uh, labor camps, of course, as was done in plantations, uh, in, in a spectacularly productive, industrially and cruel humanly, environment so the the haitian and, revolution which happened Well, before in, we get uh, there
0: I'm speaking yeah. of the cruel environment because there's a very famous french aristocrat the marquis de sade whose writings you know just the dude loved sadism and and it's 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 powerful horrific stuff if you've ever read it these people were living the marquis de sade
1: right these people were living it up. Uh, Col- uh, Colin Diane, uh, who at the time was writing under the name Joan Diane, um, spoke, used the phrase "living model." That is to say, saw the uh, the fantasies of uh, the Marquis de Sade had their living model in the plantations of Saint Domingue.
0: So yeah, so that's what we're dealing with here, and this system was there was no way this was gonna last because the the slavers who are indulging in this kind of decadence and cruelty, and I mean, they were living large. There were opera companies and lavish mansions, and they're outnumbered, what, hundreds to one? Thousands to one? At the time of the
1: uprising in 1791, there were about 30,000 whites and roughly an equal number of free people of color and half a million enslaved people, two-thirds of whom had been born in Africa. So they were hugely outnumbered.
0: And, And when this uprising happens, and it's an incredible story, maybe we'll get to it at some point and let it roll, it flings people, there's this diaspora out of this former French colony. Some of them land in Cuba. Where do they land and what's their impact? The...
1: The Haitian diaspora, the the diaspora <coughs> of people uh, escaping, especially there were several waves of uh, fleeing the revolution in Saint-Domingue because the revolution in Saint-Domingue was really a long, complex process, complicated process that at one point it was a six-sided war. It was largely settled by 1795 with Toussaint Louverture in charge, but then Napoleon reinvaded um, in 1802 with the largest army that had yet crossed the Atlantic, all of which is to say that it was, you could almost think of it as multiple struggles, which we refer to collectively as the Haitian Revolution. And so there this generated various waves of emigration of of refugees fleeing there. And but the big one was in the eighteen oh two. Um and at that point, um it looks now like the numbers, the most recent numbers I've heard based on more recent scholarship suggest maybe fifteen thousand people. Uh wound up in eastern Cuba in Oriente, especially uh, in the city of Santiago, which was uh, had a mere ten thousand people before this uh, before this movement took place in Baracoa, and what was
0: the, what was the and in
1: the and in the and in the hillside in the in the mountains where they uh, brought the cultivation of coffee to Cuba. Sorry, what were you going to
0: say? What was the ethnic makeup? Like, you've got masters and and enslaved people, right? Well, we don't have, I don't know of uh, a really good census.
1: It happened rather chaotically. And I don't know of a good census of who was who. We have a better sense of uh, when a subsequent uh movement uh, in eighteen oh nine caused uh, a number of those of the uh, French speakers in Oriente to leave and go to Louisiana. We have a much better sense of who they were but uh, they were they were white uh white slave owners, many of them were women um, uh, escaping without the men um, there were but uh plantation owners escaped. They uh, in some cases they were able to bring their uh, enslaved uh, property, human property with them, although since slavery had ended uh, with the Haitian Revolution, they were uh, they were in some cases re enslaved people. Uh it was a uh, there there were it's hard to know exactly uh, What the breakdown was, but we do know that uh, all of the social groups, one way or another, arrived in eastern Cuba. All
0: right, and let's hear our last song, and this is the Contradanza from the Cuban zarzuela Cecilia Valdez by Gonzalo Roy. and that was the contradanza in the Cuban zarzuela Cecilia Valdez by Gonzalo Roy uh, conducted by Andres Trujillo um, and the habanera dance ensemble so tell us about this contradanza what is it and why was it a big deal how did it travel around
1: the contradance or contravance in spanish was a style of dance more than it was a single genre of music uh, but it was a style of dance that uh, was danced all over, from you know, as far east as Russia, and as far west as New Orleans, all through uh, all through Europe, and uh, in the uh, in the Spanish possessions in the in the Americas, as well as the French possessions in the Americas, and um, it was a line dance. It was a it was a dance of figures uh, a cousin to the american square dance where people make figures and others follow them uh, there was a uh, in the americas the contradanza acquired a new character which was a caller who called the figures this was considered to be a barbarian thing by europeans and it may well have been a black innovation in the Americas, uh, that, uh, to actually call out the figures as if one were in a dance class. Um, but, uh, the contra danza with time, uh, morphed into the danza, which became very popular in Puerto Rico and ultimately the danzon. All of this is one, um, one thread of dance and the, uh, the music of the contralanza was uh, the the social music of the first half of the 19th century in Cuba, and the this famous set piece in the novel Cecilia Valdez, from which Gonzalo Roig's uh, opera was taken, was uh, set in I believe the 1830s, and um, this was set at a dance uh, where uh, people were dancing contralanza. In and one of the dance, in one of those dances, in which uh, uh, women of mixed race (in quotes) uh, could meet uh, white men for uh, dancing purposes and assignations.
0: Yeah, and one thing that that I'm I'm still struggling to grasp because I I haven't done that my homework on the the European dance history, but my understanding is that this was a really big deal, very saucy, because you're dancing like in a square dance where it's you know. A group of, say, four couples dancing together. But that's a big deal. The waltz doesn't come along until the 1840s. And it's scandalous. Boy, is it going to scandalize Europe. And so getting to be holding, you know, having your arm wrapped around the waist of your partner, even though you're in a group of eight, that's pretty saucy, because, you know, we're coming from this staid European Uh tradition of line dancing, where you've got groups entirely separated. This Remotely right? Dancing and embracing pairs
1: was, yes, indeed. It was a, uh, it was risque. And uh, it may be that that's what uh, propelled the contra into becoming the danza was that the danza, it, precisely in the danza, there were uh, embracing couples.
0: All right. And now we're going to introduce one more player. And you are totally right. No way are we going to cover 19th century. I'll have to drag you back uh, to talk about 19th century Cuba next time. But Another player comes into the picture, the British, who briefly rule Cuba. What's their impact?
1: The British impact is enormous. In 1762, the British take Havana, and um, part of the what was known uh, retroactively as the Seven Years' War, the same conflict that uh, in the United States. States, or its colonial predecessor was known as the uh, French and Indian War. Um, and the, the British moved into Havana, took it over, didn't really even bother to take Matanzas. But they were, they ramped up Cuba's sleepy sugar industry, removed the uh, the regulations on importing uh, enslaved Africans. So they started to bring in slaves in some numbers, and they jacked up the production of sugar. This started to make Cuba a sugar power, which after the Haitian Revolution would be consolidated. It also had the effect of enhancing greatly the power of the Creole class of Cuba. That is to say, the Creole planters who got a taste for independence with uh, this new commercial empowerment that they received under the British.
0: And what did the production of sugar require them to import in massive numbers? Because sugar, uh,
1: as grown at the time, uh, and Really, always is a a labor intensive crop that required that uh, the the profitability was directly proportional to how much labor you could apply to the land. And the calculus was a very cruel one. It was, in fact, the introduction of capitalism to Cuba the notion that uh, it was cheaper to work X number of workers. 20 hours a day in the season. Uh, Sugar work is highly seasonable. Work them to death and replace them after a few years with fresh arrivals from Africa than to have, say, twice as many workers and uh, have them work 10 hours a day and have to feed them all year long when there was nothing for them to do. So uh, sugar was a cruel and deadly crop most of the Africans who were brought to the Americas were brought to work sugar. Only in the United States, with the exception of Louisiana, where there was a sugar crop after 1795, but only in the United States was there not sugar. And slavery developed in a very different way in the United States than it did in all of the uh, sugar producing territories, which reached from um, from Cuba down to uh, Brazil.
0: And in the satanic terms of slavery, I guess you could say that northern American slave owners, slavers, uh, had more of an ownership model of the slave, where they looked to profit off the slave for the lifetime of the enslaved person's productivity and breed their children like cattle this is an Im- i mean the more i learn about this just, the just more sickening it gets an impossibly evil system but in cuba they had more of a rental car model where you just drive it into the ground and get a new one and that caused wave after wave of new immigration to happen from africa and next time we'll talk about how those communities who could keep their culture unlike in north america where the enslaved people were brutally separated from their from their neighbors and co-tribe, co-language speakers. In Cuba, you could get with people from your tribe, people from your area, and even congregate on on rare time off and play music together. So we'll talk about that next time as well as the most popular and probably greatest American musician of the 19th century, although he's so obscure, I'm not even going to mention his name. I'm going to tease you. But this dude was from New Orleans, Jewish Cat from New Orleans, who spends a lot of time in Paris and a lot of time in Havana. And he imitates i don't know imitates but follows the lead of and how do i say below for the french composer with the giant orchestras b-l-b-e-l-i-o-z berlioz berlioz okay so this this guy's going to imitate the monster orchestras of berlioz and put on these massive performances in havana uh the likes of which um never heard again. So, well, thank you so much, Ned. The book is Cuba and its music from the first drums to the mambo. And we'll be back next time on let roll.
2: Follow the letter roll podcast on Twitter at let it roll And check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. roll podcast.com Thursday. Nate welcomes Norman Lebrecht to discuss his book. Why Beethoven let It roll is a pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com.
3: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.